You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Kirk, are you beat up this morning? Quads, hips, hammies. Did you take a pound in this weekend? I, I gave a pounding this weekend. You did? I pounded some fools into the ground back in. And I took a little bit of a pounding as well, yeah. 17 miles, a couple thousand mm-hmm. feet of vert, mm-hmm. nasty conditions. Mm-hmm. You can't fake that kind of thing. Are you depleted everywhere? My life energy is great. In fact, I want to work out today. But I know that I probably should take two to three days off. I might get on the bike. So I'm not, I mean, my legs, yes. I know if I go and run down the road, it's going to, I'll be a mile in and be like, this is a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. But energy-wise, good. I think it's good. My lead-in was good. And so I'm, I'm recovering well, I would say. Now, you put it down this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, here's the deal. It's, you know, this is a local Minnesota trail race. It happens in the Driftless region, which is kind of where the glaciers missed in this section of the state. So as you know, like we talk about being flatlanders and we like to, you know, hem and hoe over no vert. But in the southern portions of both of our state, yours too, Bracken, like the southwest side of your state and the southeast side of mine, we got like, what do you call them? The bluffs, right? Mm-hmm. So we actually have some vert, like maybe only three, four, 500 foot climbs, but that's a, that's a, those are big climbs for the Midwest. Especially while running hard in between. Yeah. So that's where the race took place, which was beautiful country. And we got three days straight of rain. And I know you and I were chatting on the phone on Sunday as you were running and you saw how wet and sloppy everything was. Mm-hmm. So the course conditions were ridiculous. I mean, we're going up 30, 40% grade at times in a complete mud fest on your hands just to get up, having to run two feet left of the trail in the woods just so you could get up sections because it was like a mud. Oh, yeah. Um, I would say six or so miles of the course was that. And so a lot of my running happened off the trail through the brush because it, you got more purchase with your feet. And it was just like a true trail race, man. It was so gritty and so gnarly and so wonderful. It was how trail running should be. And so it was, it was a good course. But um, I, uh, I don't know. Yeah, one of those days where it just popped, brother. Just popped. I've trained with you enough to see what your big days can look like. And we were talking about this little off mic, but I'm either, I have an off day or I'm consistent. If you look across my history of racing, I don't have too many peaks. I have a few valleys, but most of it, I stay really steady. I, I'm a relatively steady performer. If you take away these last two or three years of injury, when I'm healthy, I kind of just know what I'm getting with me. But with you, we have days where I can kind of run with you even though I've never gotten the better of you in a workout, but there are days where I'm not on the same planet as you, where you just put me into the ground early and you keep me there and I finish trashed and you're like, Hey man, I'm going to go another 20, 30 minutes. And that's happened more than one time with us. So I've seen how you look when you, when you pop something Mm. and it looks like you popped something this weekend. Yeah. Thanks man. I, um, I, you know, 
And I've mentioned this, this has been my story and I guess, you know, we'll eventually drop this storyline. Right. But I think the week before I ran 15 or 16 miles total, and then I go run a 17 mile trail race trail race. And it just feels good not to be full of shit, man. That's all I can say is that all is not lost. If you can't run as much as, as you would like to, and if it's done right. And as you'll find out in our episode today, if you swing the hammer hard, when it needs to be swung in training, you can still race well off of low run volume. And so more than anything, it was like, I just felt super vindicated that it came together. And I did, um, I did some research on the guys I beat and you know, the guy that took second place is a two nineteen marathoner and he ran 1440 in the five K on the roads, the gentleman in third, Nathan, um, Mike Ferguson holds the old course record. This is a new course that they've never run in Zumbro. They got access to some private land that they were able to use. So they veered the course into some gnarlier terrain. Um, the gentleman who took third beat Mike by like five or seven minutes in a trail race, a 25 K uh, Mike Ferguson a few years ago, the last time like pre COVID racing was going on. So um, some could say, Oh, you won by eight and a half, almost nine minutes. It was watered down. But then I felt like I needed to validate my performance. So I went and creeped on the people who I beat and they're no slouches. So no. it's very just confirming that I'm doing the right things in training and, and I'm, I'm approaching this correctly. And even if I can't run high volume ever again, I still believe I can show up to a long race, a beast Spartan and still perform and not be able to use the, I'm not running enough excuse because that is out the window for anybody. In my opinion, motorcycle just started up outside. I'm just gonna. No, leave, leave this in. This is how it goes. We good. All right. Uh, it two nineteen in the marathon. It's a number. Sorry to interrupt. This gentleman is uh, incredibly, he's older. So he's 40 something which so he's not 41 i thought i saw it is not in his is maybe his heyday but this gentleman lost to mike ferguson the last time this race was run he was second again by like two and a half minutes yeah so yeah but 219 let's put it in perspective 219 let's even say it was five years ago that's right around you know math isn't my thing but it's got to be about 513 per mile for 26 miles something like that so this guy is someone who in controlled circumstances, terrain and uh, and and not turning a lot can hold uh, his threshold pace is sub five because you can hold five thirteen for two hours comfortably. Crazy! I can't even fathom that. Maybe not comfortably, but uncomfortably hold five thirteen for two months for two hours. Mm-hmm. I don't care if he's five years older than that. And terrain certainly brings people closer together. But to beat him by eight and a half minutes over seventeen miles. 8.55. Nine minutes over 17 <laughs> miles, 30 seconds something per mile against a guy that can hold 5.13 for two hours. It just puts it in perspective that your on day matches anybody's on day. Yeah, and I have my off days too. And I, you know, dang it, Bracken, I wish I could. Be. You say you don't have the peaks and valleys. I have like no middle ground. It's either high or low. And the middle is that gray area zone three that nobody should ever train in. And I'm either above it or below it, apparently. Well, anyways, I'm proud of you and I'm impressed at the same time. So that's Thanks, awesome. brother. I told you right away after the race, I said, damn it, Bracken, I wish I wish we were towing the line to the U.S. National Series race on that Saturday because it would have been it would have been a really good day for me. And mm-hmm. I also will say that some people question if OCR specific compromise running works and does it translate to just pure running? And all I know is that when I was able to go out, even all that shitty mud and the steep up and downs and lots of rock faces and technical descents and all of that, 
it was so much easier than like a compromise run shithole workout where it just sucks. It was still like, ah, I'm only running. I, I never had to cross that red line until I chose to. And so it just confirmed also that the, the compromise work translates to pure running. So you know this already. Most people know this, but yeah, it's another example of that. What I found is that OCR running makes for system shock the first half of a race, maybe the first third of a regular race. You don't get a break from the running. It's a little faster, maybe even higher cadence than you're used to. But what it does for me is it's staying power in the second half. When it gets really bad, I feel like I just degrade less than the people around me. It's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's staying power. And all those little hiccups, the hills, the mud, the slips, the, you know, your feet going out from underneath you, they don't damage you the same when you have compromised run workouts in the bank. Yeah. And I was meaning to say, I got a little um, crap from uh, Matt over at VJ when I, VJ Shoes, who I love. <laughs> when I said I was going to wear the speed goats for the race, I got a, I got a text. He was giving me shit, right? For being, you know, practicing infidelity. And Matt, I want to <laughs> tell you that if I could go back, I would have wore my VJs instead of the speed goats because I actually feel like I left some time on the table due to traction issues. So Matt, you were right. I was wrong. I should have worn my VJs. Still worked out, but I just wanted to let you know, Matt. That's a good point. Mark Gaudette and I were having a conversation this morning, actually, Kirk. Okay. About shoes and distances and how much shoe do you need for each distance. And one of the things we talked about is that as the course gets sloppier, you need less shoe. 100%. And so like you, I would have gone into a 17-mile trail race with some downhill in Hoka's. But every inch it rained it would have brought me closer and closer to um, that more firm, low stack height VJ need because the, the mud provides a few mil of cushion. It's almost like it's extra EVA foam underneath you. You just don't take a pounding the way you would on a hard pack. Exactly. That's exactly what I found out. You know, yeah. you get at times at inches of you know, foam under my feet. If you tra- if you called it mud. So yeah, he asked me what I, what my beast shoes are. And I said, you know what I found? I have West coast beast shoes and East coast beast shoes. And by beast, we mean 13 miles or longer. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking 90 minutes or more on feet, West coast, hard pack, really, really hard ground. I mean, the, the smallest cushion I can wear is the Scott super track mm-hmm. RC two or RC one. That's like that perfect cushion to weight ratio. That's the minimum I can wear in a 90 minute plus race there, or I have to go up to a a Hoka, but on East coast I can wear, I mean, I did an ultra beast. So that was seven hours and 44 minutes, I think of time on feet in Killington in the X Talon one nineties, which is very minimal comparatively seven, seven and a half ounces really Mm -hmm. flexible. And so it it really, it depends. It's East coast or West coast terrain, which is hard pack or soft and spongy. Yeah, that's a good point. I I didn't have quite the course knowledge beforehand, like, cause I never run it before. I Mm -hmm. I was told it was muddy, but didn't know, but you never, you never think it's going to be that bad until suddenly you're out there and it's that bad. So Um, let's talk about you real quick and then we'll get into our topic of the day. You, we had a conversation, Brad and I had a conversation yesterday while he was out running. You saved my run. You don't know that. How? Because I didn't know if my ankle was ready. I thought it was. I got out of the car and you called me as I started walking toward the trail. I had a hundred meter walk to the trailhead and it felt fine. And I took my first couple steps running and I thought it's too soon. My ankle hurt. It felt unstable, uh, but I was on the phone with you. 
I had my mm-hmm. AirPods in, so I just kept jogging and it hurt for a couple of minutes. And then I got lost in our conversation. And when we hung up, I realized my foot had worked itself out and was feeling pretty darn good. But I would have turned around without something to distract me. Really? Yeah. No, what I think? I think rolled ankles are liars. I think they're all bark and very little bite. That's what I think. Up until a point. Uh, I, I've only had one experience now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it was ugly. But as long as you don't do the same motion that happened when you rolled your ankle, like let's say you accidentally step on that rock again wrong and roll it the same way, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. But if you can keep that ankle stable, I think they're all bite, bark and no bite. That's what I think. Yeah. And, and sometimes injuries are liars. Totally. Sometimes they're telling you, don't use me, don't use me, don't use me. And you use them and they said, see, you shouldn't have used me. You're worse now. And other times they say, don't you dare use me. And you use them and they're like, oh, okay, I just had to knock the rust off. And that's what this ankle was. It was saying, I'm not ready. And after five, 10 minutes, it said, okay, you're right. I'm back. I feel like ankles do that from my experience and other people's stories do that more than other parts of the body though. Yeah. Ankles more than like a knee or a hip or anything. For sure. An Achilles. But anyways, I got a, I got a, like a 55, 56 minute run in on trails and I went into some, some stuff. It wasn't smooth. It was not tame. I I ran on, I I ran probably a quarter of it where I couldn't see my shoes. It was under water or mud and my ankle held up and it's even better today. So good. Back into the training groove and Kirk, Dr. Clary. Yes. Why does it take a power lifter to make me a better run coach? I don't know, Bracken. But I implemented my my updated training schedule starting today. And I went away from my seven day. And now I'm on a, fl- a floating nine to 11 day schedule. Because I realized I'm still operating under old false premises. I don't have a boss anymore. I set my own schedule. So mm-hmm. I'm not beholden to seven days. Everybody knows Lisa's your boss, Bracken. I wear the pants around here, Kirk. <laughs> I'm not convinced. Continue. <laughs> you can't see what I'm wearing through this video screen right now. I'm sure it's lots of pants. <laughs> I have all the pants on. But so why would I stick to seven days? My body doesn't care about seven days. I don't respond best on seven. I've been mm-hmm. at my best when I'm on a rolling schedule in Colorado or a nine to 11 day. And so that's what I went back to. Well, outline outline the the training group that does this. Okay. So many people do this, I'm sure, but. And by the way, sorry, sorry to interrupt. By the way, this is still actually going to lead us into our conversation yes. of the day, by the way. All of this is the rationale for what we're about to talk about. Yeah. I just want to make, because now we're like 15 <laughs> minutes deep and it seems like we're going nowhere, but we're going somewhere. Yes. Yes, Continue. we are. Continue. Sorry. No, that's it, it's good to remind people that we're, I mean, we are rambling a bit, but with purpose, purposeful yeah. ramblers. Can you hear these bells in the background? Yeah, they're nice. We hit the the noon time again as so we get 15 minutes of church bells. <laughs> All right. That's good background. Serenade the audience. If I could get them to play at 180 beats per minute, we could actually help people's running while they listen to this. You get them to play our theme song. <laughs> Did you see the Instagram post of someone opening their shirt? whistling our theme song (laughs) no i did not it was one of the best moments of my day another by the way folks before we forget to get this out there is we do have two new t-shirts and we have one that is a multicolored pen that says tuesday 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 underneath it 
And some of you are wondering if that was like a joke or not. No, I have I have a freaking 200 of these t-shirts sitting in my spare bedroom right now. You better go buy them, okay? Because <laughs> right now I'm out. That wasn't Photoshop. These are real. No, we the, we have the multicolored pen t-shirt. I can I can see them from here. I've got boxes of them. And we also have a Heather Gray with a black, the Running Public logo. It is as soft as the yellow retro Running Public logo shirt. It feels like you're wearing nothing. It's the only shirt you want to wear. So like those two shirts are in the Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday shirts for real. Go buy it. Okay. Because right now I got a lot of them. That's it. End of plug. Back to our our smooth sailing into our topic. Renato Canova is one of those running minds I highly respect. He's that, what is he now? 82, 85 year old Italian coach who lives in Africa and coaches a training group out there. Everyone from 800 meters up to marathon. And they're hugely successful. But what he does is after they leave base training and he has, he has, he's very specialized in his blocks of training. He has his preparation block. He has his uh, special block. He has, um, oh, I'm going to forget all the terms now, but he has his own special terms made up. He has like four different blocks of training. They all lead towards race day. But as they get to their specific work that they're going to start doing, he removes weekly schedules. They do their big workout and he swings the hammer hard on workouts. And then they don't do their next workout until they're ready. And sometimes it's two days. And after monster workouts, sometimes it's seven days until their next hard workout. He just lets it roll until they're ready to respond. Now, it doesn't happen during base phase, but it happens when they're hitting workouts that all are 100% designed for their next race. Workouts that are damaging, workouts that you need to take time to absorb and recover from before you hit the others instead of staying on a predetermined schedule. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And that all piggybacks what what Dr. Fred Clary was saying about once every 14 days or 10 days, swinging the hammer hard. Yeah. And so I used to do it and I got away from it for social reasons. It was just easier to do long runs if I could find a friend on Saturday. Mm -hmm. But I, I can do it on Wednesday. I can do it any day it falls on. So do I have to sacrifice a little bit of maybe meetup time with Ross or someone? Yeah, but we can get together for a lift in the morning or whatever it's going to be. So I'm moving back to that. And instantly is like a sigh of relief. I like that because then there's no more shuffling of my cards of, I have to put these two cards too close together because it's the only way to get all the cards in the deck. Now it's, mm-hmm. I get to spread those cards out on the table in front of me and calmly reach for them when I'm ready for them. Something very profound. So today's episode, folks, is based, I'm sure it will title it Swing the Hammer Hard, right? Yeah. And that's what we're talking about today. But something profound that stuck with me from talking to, to Fred was, he's like, our bodies are amazing, he said, right? You need to do 10 minutes of work a week on joint stability, and your body will adapt to even that small amount of stimulus. Now, we're not talking about small stimulus today, but what I'm getting at is that he said like, our bodies will adapt to maybe even infrequent stimulation as long as it's the right stimulation. So why do we feel like we need to go hard every other day or every third day? Our bodies don't lose fitness that quick one. Science shows us it takes at least three weeks of true detraining to like actual lose VO2 max and metabolic conditioning, right? So why do we feel like we need to get two or three quality workouts a week? We may just be digging ourselves a hole further instead of swing the hammer freaking hard, hard as hell, and then chill and then repeat when it's right. And so this schedule is going to allow me to swing a little harder because the the problem people run into, 
is that they're not ready for their next swing of the hammer. And, and one of the big correct statements in our sport that's correct for people for the wrong reasons is don't spend too much time in that zone three, that middle area. And I think a lot of people think that it's a, it's a destructive pace to be at, or there's not enough bang for your buck. And it really isn't any of that. It's just that people don't treat it as its own quality day. They treat it as an in-between quality day effort. Zone three by itself is shown to be highly effective with improving fitness, but it has to be its own big swing day. If, you, if you're swinging hard on Tuesday and you're swinging hard on Saturday and on Wednesday and Thursday or Thursday and Friday, you're, you're sitting in that zone three area, high zone three. It's not that it's bad for your fitness. It's that you come into Saturday and you can't swing as hard as you want to swing because it was a bit damaging. It did cause a stress cycle in your body and your body has to adapt to it. And so it's not fully ready for that Saturday swing. So yes, you should not spend too much time in zone, high zone three in between workouts, but it's a great zone to be in. Am mm -hmm. I being clear about that? Being very clear. I'm following you perfectly. So what we want to talk about today is, is not that we're not going to work out often and not that we're not going to work out every day and not that we're going to shy away from certain zones. It's that when you hit it, you really hit it. And when you're not hitting it, you really recover. Yes. We talk polarized training. We talk 80-20. That's great. This is the now the extension of that. This is the extension of the 20 we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. Not just you have to do 20 hard, 80 easy, or plus minus 10% from that. But how do you actually do 20 hard? Yeah, and, and, and Dr. Clary kept talking about like train at 110%, train at 125%. And people are like, that's not even real. Those aren't real numbers. You can't train at 110%. 100% as high as it goes. And there was some confusion about that. Like, what does that mean, right? Yeah. And I think we want to clarify that. And I agree with his philosophy completely. So we're diving into that aspect too. Like, what does that actually mean to train at 120%? That's confusing. How can you do that if that's beyond 100%, right? My dad asked me that. Yeah, it's a it was a confusing conversation. He said, so what does that even mean for a sport like yours? He said, I can see what it would mean for weightlifting. You overload the bar. He said, but what does it mean for a sport like yours? If you're going to do a 15-mile race, do you have to go hit 20-mile workouts? And the answer is maybe, but maybe not. But what we're talking about is, for example, the mistake I made, I've made in the past with athletes. We look at Killington or we look at the Montana Beast, which is coming up, and we know that's about four to 5,000 feet of vert throughout that course. And so I would start this workout progression where our big workout started at 3,000 on day one, and they got up to 5,000 or 5,500 feet by three weeks out. And so we knew we could handle 5,000 feet of vert on any day. And then we also had downhill days where we knew we could handle that. And then we had 13-mile hard, long runs. So you knew you had all the pieces to be able to handle what the test was going to be requiring from you. And what Fred Clary is saying is, no, prepare for 7,000 feet of vert. He's not saying go do 7,000 feet of vert followed by 7,000 feet of descent followed by 21 miles all in the same workout. It's that you need to be prepared for more than the demands of the race so that you can stay within yourself and not blow up on race day. And that's the one thing when we talked after my race this weekend that you outlined that maybe I do in my training could I, for example, go run four miles every day and I could be a six or seven day a week a runner? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I definitely could. But what do I do? I run three days a week and when I go, I it's on, right? Yep. And so outlining that 
general philosophy, I think is, is important. I like to think of like, we were talking about like zone three and I like how you outline that because I think there's a little misconception about, yeah, zone three is beneficial, but what it takes away from your quality days makes it detrimental, right? That's what you were outlining in a sense. It's like, what is zone three? Like zone three is a pendulum. Let's say think of a pendulum, right? And the left side is your peak performance and the right side is your recovery. And you just kind of flick that pendulum and it just waves back and forth just a little bit, right? And you just kind of stay in that middle, like gray area ground and you never hit a high peak on one side and you never hit a low valley on the other side and it just stays. But if you smack that pendulum and that baby swings all the way up on top, what happens when it comes back down? It goes all the way back down on the other side and up all the way again, right? It, it, it counteracts what you just did to it. And that blunt force is exactly how we should train, right? Zone three just has you in that little tiny pendulum back and forth in that gray area in the bottom. But when you smack that freaking thing and it reaches high, what's the retribution? It goes just as high on the recovery side, right? And that's mm-hmm. like, that is what we're trying to outline needs to happen in order to best prepare your body. If you, yeah. throw, if you swing the hammer hard at that pendulum and it flies up, the reaction to that is equally as hard on the recovery front. So there's something to that. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And what we oftentimes as athletes do is we block that equal and opposite reaction. We try to hit that first side hard, and then we put up a wall and stop it from swinging too low because we don't want to get out of shape. How high can it swing again? Then it, that, that ricochet off there, yeah, it doesn't bounce too far off there because there's not any momentum you can put into it because you're depleted. Exactly. Exactly right. Why are we all idiots? Why are we such idiots, Bracken? Why are we so stubborn and stuck in our ways and care about what people think of our Strava run? idiots. Well, in Clary's comment, is that how the body works? Might And my dad said that is that might just be the most beneficial question to ever ask yourself with training is, is that how my body works? So let's talk about threshold training. We really like it, but it's not considered high, high-end training. And I want to start with the Ingebrigtsens again. <laughs> People are going to get tired of me talking about them, mm. but they are innovative in how they train. They train primarily outside of their race sharpening. They train primarily at threshold. So if you or I were to go to a threshold workout, 20 to 30, maybe 40 minutes of threshold work, and then you're done. But that doesn't beat you up because if you're truly staying in the threshold range, it's not that damaging. So what do they do? They might run, I don't know, eight to 10 by thousand in the morning at threshold. Eight to 10 by thousand is a damaging workout when you run it at 10K pace or 5K pace. But at threshold, at 60 minute race pace, 8,000 meters, less than five miles at 13 to to 12 to 13 mile race pace, that is not damaging. They come back in the evening and they might run 30 by 200 at threshold again, or they Mm -hmm. might do 30 by one minute at threshold. They're doubling up on thresholds two to three times a week. So while they're not hitting the swinging the hammer super hard in terms of intensity, the volume of that workout is a full hammer swing. Think about that. Think about, let's say they do 10 by a thousand, right? That's Mm -hmm. 10,000 meters. And then in the afternoon they do 30 by one minute, which is probably covering them another six or seven miles, Mm -hmm. right? So they have now done 13 to 14 miles of quality work in a day to prepare for a race. That's how long? I mean, they run mile through 5K. Would you call that swinging the hammer hard? 
that's swinging the hammer hard. Now, that's not a safe model for us because they are genetic outliers who have been training since they're 10 and they don't have jobs. They don't have normal lives. They exist to recover for workouts. But what that tells us is that we can add more to our threshold work than we think. So that one of the common is 20 to 30 minute tempo run followed by four by 200 meters hard. That's a great start. That's adding something to the day, but simply 20 to 30 minutes of threshold work is not a hard hammer swing. And so if you go by the standard three hard days per week, you do a hard interval session and you swing it hard and you're going to get a long hard run and you're going to swing it hard. Yeah, you can put a tempo run in the middle, but is that Thursday tempo at 20 minutes really worth picking that hammer up? Is that preparing you for a two-hour beast race in the mountains to go and feel like you're in control of that effort instead of hanging on? When paired with multiple workouts throughout the week, sure. But that's hard to get right. What's simpler to get right is to make that workout bigger and only swing twice that week. But every time you pick up the hammer, you know you're about to swing that thing. Yes. Do you remember how this conver- how this idea started, Bracken? Do you remember how this conversation, st- where this idea came from for today? I do. You asked me something. Why do you think you race so well? Yes. So you, so this all started, well, I'm just reiterating the point and I want to outline something to you guys that I did and I'm having constant aha moments. We're constantly learning, right? Bracken, we don't, (laughs) as Yancey says, fail forward. I love his quote there and we're constantly doing that. So what happened was this, I went to Vegas and I raced and I ran okay. Like I ran hard, but I did not have the fitness in Vegas. I even had this weekend, not a chance, but you said, why do you think you race so well? And I was thinking about it and I said, you know, I think Vegas Vegas's workload just sunk in. I adapted, I recovered, and it came to just in time for this trail race this weekend. And talk about swinging the hammer hard by racing back-to-back days. And do you want to know what I did following that, Bracken? I didn't do shit Monday. On Tuesday, I went for a run. It was terrible. On Wednesday, I cross-trained. On Thursday, I don't remember what I did. I finally went, I just chilled for like three, four, five days, let it soak in, went for a run on Saturday, was still depleted, and just let that win. I listened to my body. You pushed your quality day back. I basically didn't even do it. I cut it short. I told you how bad it went. I was like, not Mm -hmm. my time. And then all I did was did a two-minute, one-minute on and off interval workout Wednesday, which is 10 days after Vegas, just to make sure my turnover and working the kinks out. And then I go race, and everything clicks. I barely did. Guys, I did like 15 minutes of quality work in two weeks between Vegas and this race. 15 minutes. Let that sink in. But what did I do? I swung the hammer hard as shit in Vegas, and I swung the hammer hard as shit this weekend. And I bet you if I race in two weeks from now, Bracken, or if I have a big workout, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to knock it out of the park because I recovered as hard on that one side of the pendulum, and I swung it as hard on the racing and push side of the pendulum. And so like, it was just very eye-opening for me. And so you asking that question is what spawned this conversation. Well, and you've said from day one that big races change you. Big workout weekends change you as an athlete. Mm-hmm. And you respond so much quicker than I do to some things. You, you, you just snap into shape really quickly. That And part of it is you don't let yourself go. You're the best cross trainer I know. So you, even when you're out of running shape, you're in fantastic shape. So I'm not just saying you have this genetic gift and screw the effort you put in. You put in your work to stay in shape. But because you snap into shape so quick, I've kind of always taken it with a grain of salt. But your comment of Vegas changed the trajectory of my fitness. It really hit me. And I started going back through and I was thinking, and guess who I came back to? 
Canova, Coach Canova. I started reading on Coach Renato Canova in 2010 after I graduated college. I left there with a, a hunger to know why running works the way it works because I didn't learn any why in college. And he was one of the first great minds I stumbled upon. But one of things he one of the things he has is what he calls his special block. And he has this for his athletes from 800 meters all the way up to marathon. As they're approaching, it caps off their big training load before they sharpen for races. And a special block is actually only two days long. Sometimes it's one day long, but it's double full workouts in the same day. Okay. So a classic uh, marathon workout might be three by 5K tempo or two by 5K tempo or 10K tempo, 10 to 15 by 1,000. He'll put two of them in the same day. AM, you're going to go out and do two by 5K. PM, you're going to do a 10K tempo. Or you're going to do 10 by 1,000 in the morning, two by 5K in the evening. That's a massive destructive effort. And then you just go into hibernation. You just absorb it and absorb it, and you're not allowed to do anything afterwards for at least a week hard. You're moving, like, like Fred said, you're active recovering, but you are not allowed to touch anything intense until you're fully absorbing of that weekend, that special block. Well, I think that's important to say as a side note, um, like between Vegas, which was two weeks ago in this trail race, I actually did something every single day other than the day after the race I took completely off. Like we, we were, I was doing cardio effort every day. I didn't take a day off. I took 13 days straight of working out. So yes, it's not like we're implying that you just work out really hard and then sit on the couch for five days and then work out really hard and sit on the couch for five days. That model doesn't work either. But yes, I just wanted to reiterate that point. Yeah. When you say on Monday, I didn't do a thing. That means I didn't run a step. I lifted. Yeah. That's my off day. Yeah. Anyways, his he believes very strongly that that special block changes you. And we are not good enough athletes with the years of high, high volume aerobic work that his world-class athletes have to be able to handle that type of weekend. But what we can do is go out to Vegas and race back-to-back days. Or we can hit a hard trail race one day and do a a hill workout the next day. Or we can hit two threshold days on a Saturday. We we can do that type of work and it changes us. And you were changed by yours. And the second thing it does is that it addresses an issue that a few athletes that I work with encountered this weekend on their first weekend back, which was I ran a better second half than first half. I wasn't able to, they, they all said, I felt like I was missing the ability to shift into the gear. My gear was there, but I wasn't ready to get nasty to start that out. You mean day two went better than day one? Uh, second half, oh, day two went better than day one for a lot of people, but the second half of the race went better than the first half. Oh. There's one girl I work with, Ashley, who uh, the first half of the race in Charlotte, she was ranked in the bottom of the elite heat and because they have those zones now and her last zone was a top five zone. Mm. And generally... Your, your button's been pushed by the halfway point. And what she said is, I just wasn't ready to get out there and get nasty. And the harder and bigger we swing in training, the more we're ready to accept how badly we need to go into the well on race day. Yes, I agree with that full, full-heartedly. I, I think when, when it comes to this conversation, I think we should be a little bit more specific because this all ties back to like Dr. Fred's 
120% and then the race is easy and you can win it 90%. It all sounds great in theory and it's kind of fluffy, right? Like, doesn't that sound nice? You can just go try not as hard as you need to and you're going to win. And so like, great, but how do you do that? And that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Yes. So those big hammer swings would be the equivalent of what Dr. Clary was saying, train at 120%. That's yeah. the hammer swing. So what, what is that specifically? Like what would, how would that, how would that look in your training schedule, in your opinion? I have a few thoughts. I know you do too. Yeah. I want to start on the roads and transfer to off-road and then to OCR. I think those are the three segments of, pot of audience we hit. So on the roads, I love going back to the Atlanta Olympic trials. Good. Everybody had over a year to prepare for that Atlanta course, maybe two years. They knew what the profile of the course was going to be. They knew it was going to be hillier than any Olympic trials in the past. And yet people were still destroyed by the hills. And what that tells us is either A, they didn't take it seriously, the hill factor. They took their training seriously, but they didn't take the hill factor seriously. So they train for 100% of the pace and distance, maybe even 120% of pace and distance they had to be ready for, but they underprepared for the actual hills. Mm -hmm. Or they trained to the level of the hills they were going to have to hit, but that didn't take into account the race day variables, heat, dehydration, surges, tactics that are going on in the pack that drain you. And so I'd like to start there. What does 120% of the Atlanta marathon course hills look like? It means that when you do your hill workouts or you do your hilly tempo, instead of hitting the exact profile of the course, you hit one that's 20% steeper or longer, the hills. Because if you can handle a 200 foot hill, 100 feet, 150 feet on race day, feels like you're relaxing. Mm -hmm. And that's how you would treat it. Rather than identify your course profile and hit that profile, you exaggerate the profile 20%. And those are the hills you hit so that you're super compensated for those hills. And now, like he said, you're sitting in that 85, 90% of my damage meter on race day. That's a pretty good way to just sum exactly up what you know, Dr. Fred was referring to. And you can do that in a lot of aspects of training and racing, yeah. correct? And so, and so that is, is simply put what he was talking about. If, for example, your race has what we all have mountain races coming up. And let's say there's a, a Utah is probably going to, and the Beast is probably going to have four to 5,000 feet of vert. They're going to go up the mountain twice. And so you barely scratch the surface of that in your training runs and you get to race day and, and you have nothing to fall back on. There's no cushion built for perceived exertion. So is going out and doing four or 5,000 feet of vert, is that swinging the hammer hard? I'd say it's swinging the hammer, but it's not swinging the hammer hard. And so that's like, hey, it's going to suck today, but I'm going to go out and get 7,000 feet of vert and I'm going to work my descents and I'm going to be mess. I'm going to be trash. And God dare never do that within three weeks of a, a race that matters, by the way. But swinging the hammer hard and even looking at those efforts three weeks apart. For my ultra athletes, they swing the hammer hard every four weeks, bracket. Mm -hmm. I double them only every four weeks. You swing that hammer hard and then you recover. And that same thing goes for all of these. If you're going to race a 10K and that's what you're working your way up to, that's a big deal for you. Doing a 10K in a training run beforehand to build confidence is great, but is it going to train you to really perform your best? No, doing double or triple that in a long run is going to train you. 10K is going to go by in a flash. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, it is. So now, now we move off-road to OCR. And we have a totally different demand because obstacles are present. And so let's let's say a, a bucket carry, for example, is something that really makes it, A, you're not great at doing it during the race, 
but B, it's hard to come off that thing and run. So what people do is they say, I always get the question, how much does a Spartan bucket weigh? And you say, oh, it's about 60 to 70 pounds. In the past, now it's probably more like 45 to 55. Mm-hmm. 120% in my mind has to be addressed from both ends of the spectrum. You have to address both the run and the carry. So one of the days, one of the times you address it, you extend the run because you don't want to get too good at doing the exact run and the exact carry that you're about to do because race hits differently. So you do your 50 pound bucket and you do the normal bucket distance you're going to do. Let's say you do a 300 meter bucket into a 400 meter run. And that's your interval and you do it. Well, sometimes double that. Go from 300 meter bucket into 800 meter run. Now, you know, you have the ability to sustain twice as long afterwards as you might need to before the next obstacle. Your running's there. Now, if you get hit another obstacle 400 meters rather than 800, you're set. But then you have to do it on the carry too. You have to go do either double weight or double duration so that by the time you get done with that carry, you're double depleted or 20% more depleted. And now you go into that run afterwards. So you hit both sides of that spectrum, run more than and faster than I need to coming out and come out of the the carry more depleted than I'm going to need to be on race day. That's exactly it. That's how those percentages equate to workouts. Yeah. It either equates in three ways. It equates to overspeed training, meaning you're training at something faster than your race, more intense and painful than what the race is going to demand. That would be like training at 120%, for example. Again, we're just I'm just throwing that percent around, but just it's more theory than anything. You can run longer than the race demands, which we do in long runs and things like that. And then you can add in, like you mentioned, over, um, I don't know, how would you describe the bucket? Just overstimulation, over, however you would call it. Over deplete yourself. Over deplete. Like tracing to the, training to the race demand is great. It's fantastic. And you already know what your ceiling is going to be because that's all you've trained. But if you train beyond it, as he had said, it just it makes so much dang sense. So like if you were to, okay, I guess you took this, yeah, I guess you did the road, off-road and uh, and OCR examples, didn't you? Did you get through those? Yeah, I, I didn't, I guess, touch pure trail, but it's the mesh between the two. <laughs> okay, so how does that translate? Like I think we should chat out, let's say it's Tuesday and it is your quality day. Let's forget about the rotating schedule and all and mm-hmm. that stuff. Just say that's how it goes. And that's how our training plan follows right now, the running public training plan. What does that actually look like then when you say train at 120% and your workout is X? Like, what is that? What do you, how do you approach that? Well, we establish what is our race pace. And if I look at my, my trail racing or my OCR racing, we have these great GPS watches, which tell us every time I'm on a flat, this is what I settle into. Let's say that that's six minute pace. If you're settling into six minute pace, then you've got to be able to run 540 in training in order Mm -hmm. to settle into six in a race or 530. And so your speed work that week is going to be done at a deviation or two faster than race pace. So if you're training for a 10K, yeah, you need to do 10K paced work. But most coaches that you see out there, the high level pros, you're working at one to three percent faster than race pace when you're doing true race pace work. So even when you're running your race pace, they nudge you up a little bit. But 10K racers will also do plenty of work at 3K or 5K pace because it's that I'm, it's the same concept of lifting heavier than you'll need to during a race. Do we need to be able to deadlift 400 pounds? No, but it makes a 200 pound tire lift a whole lot easier if you're not having to use all of your muscle. Same thing for speed. If you can comfortably run at five minute pace, 
well, six minute pace for 10 miles suddenly isn't as drastically close to your upper limit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really well outlined. I am, you know, I was thinking like about how we were going to address all of this because it's cloudy, right? Like Mm -hmm. what does training at 120% mean? And, and yes, it means over speed training. It means training more than what your race is going to demand. But like, sometimes that's still hard to like really understand what that means. And what I've realized and going back to like the Vegas and then now this trail race conversation is I feel like a lot of us get, get by not with the bare minimum, cause you guys are working hard, but we do what is like acceptable. What makes sense? What we've heard from others that we should go out and do six or eight by a thousand. Cause that's what Bracken talks about, or we should go up and do an up, down, up hill repeat workout and do six reps of that and call it good because we've heard it from you guys or we've learned it somewhere. When I really think about it and I think about it more, like getting out of our own box, getting out of our own way and and stretching ourselves on those days. Who cares? What, what, half the time some people worry about, which I've gone out the window is like, I'm going to work so hard. If I do too much today, it's going to take away from me be able to get my miles in the rest of the week or it's going to take away from me showing up and be able to work out how I want to, and it's going to mess with everything. So I can't go do 10,000 feet of vert today. Can I like, that is ridiculous. Well, if you're training for Killington and it's six and a half, you might need to, and then you mm-hmm. might need to take four or five days off. And so I just like that thought has just like really messed with me all of a sudden about like, if I'm doing OCR mile repeats and I'm accumulating five miles of that, but then I'm following that up two or three days later with another quality workout. What if I did eight? And then what if I didn't do anything hard again for five days? Yeah. And I think there's some merit to that. And so that's, I, I, all I know is that I've just experienced this recently. And I think I'm kind of having this like blown mind syndrome right now about like what I want to do moving forward. Well, it's, it shows that you, you're at that next level of, of thinking now. When you look at inventions, anytime an invention happens in some industry, it's because someone made an aha moment about this is no longer true, or it doesn't have to be true. And so when we when we run into a, a roadblock with our training, I can't do this because of that. The that is now the piece that we have to reevaluate. So I can't do 8,000 feet of vert on this workout because then I can't get blank. Mm-hmm. Now we look at blank and say, now, is that necessary? Is that how my body works? Does my body work that if I can't, if I get seven or 10,000 on Saturday, I can't get a 10 mile easy run tomorrow to hit 70 miles for my week. And now we look and say, is that how my body works? Is my, does my body work off 70 miles no matter what, or does it work on stress recovery adaptation? What's better for me, hitting my 70 or hitting my 10,000 foot day and maybe only getting 60 in? It's, it's that the piece that the, the the new thing that you know works, that you're certain now that, hey, there's some merit to this and this will change me, but it keeps running into this one complication. Is that complication necessary any longer? And these big breakthroughs that happen in other industries are because people realize that used to be thought as necessary, but I don't think it is anymore. They remove that barrier. Suddenly the new piece flows perfectly and people realize we didn't need that barrier. It was self-imposed because we were using old data. And that's where we're at right now. I work out every seven, I'm on a seven day schedule or I run 80 miles per week or I lift four times per week. I can't do this really big hill workout because I can't hit my leg workout two days later. 
you look at the leg workout and say, A, does it need to be done? And B, does it need to go on that day? That's that next level of thinking. Yeah, people sometimes think about what that might might take away from them mm-hmm. than how it's actually benefiting them. And that's that's a true thing that people deal with, the mileage hogs, you know? Yes. I, I If you look at my big workouts, I'm doing big workouts as if I was running 70 or 80 miles a week. Like I'm doing the same big workouts that a 70 or 80 miler a week would do, but then I'm just filling the gaps with easy non-impact work, right? So swinging the hammer hard. And you think about how do, what happens when, how does the body get better? How does it physiologically adapt to exercise? You put your body under a stress, a strain that it doesn't typically feel, something that is beyond what it knows, right? And then your body says, well, I need to callous myself in order to better handle this crazy shit that you just put me through. And it becomes, it becomes more resilient. It adapts and you become better, right? But all it is, is it's your body's response to handle a demand that you put on it. So it doesn't lose its shit the next time you do that. That's how the body works. Yes. And so think like, does it make sense that you would get more adaptation from completely just reinventing the physiological wheel in your system by going out and doing crazy beyond race stuff for that extra adaptation, equalizing out that pendulum with the proper recovery. See, we're not glorifying like go out and hammer crazy and then like don't change anything about your recovery in between. That's not what we're advocating. The 120% requires the recovery piece to be 120% too. Exactly. And that's where people have a hard time. I often program like, for example, on these, these ultra athletes I have where they do like, honestly, it's like a 10 mile or an eight mile threshold in the morning on Saturday. And then a two, two hour run on that afternoon. And then they're going out for three or four on hours on Sunday. And that's a lot of work. That's what six, eight hours of work starting with a big hard threshold or a tempo run. And then they take three days off and they, they're like, well, I don't want to have to take three days off. That's going to impact me negatively for my race coming up. That's in four weeks. Like I can't take three days off. I get fight on that every single damn time. Mm-hmm. Like, did you mistype my programming? No, because now, you know, every, what is it? Force has an equal and opposite reaction and the opposite reaction is chill. So yes. you just got to get over that piece is what I'm talking. About. Yeah. Some of these things have to be taken on faith, but I love Clary's comment, which, which is, does the body work that way? It requires less, less faith. If you see the biological reasoning behind things that, okay, the body does respond to attacks with an equal and opposite reaction. Mm -hmm. And so little jabs, it responds with little reactions, big jabs. It responds with big reactions, but only if it's given time, our body is basically like, okay, so Lisa and I just finished up game of Thrones again, I believe. No, no. First time I just in the last month, we finished it. Oh, you're behind. You didn't watch it. No, no, no. We, we, we just started it this year. Oh, all right. We finished it up in the past month, but our body is basically like those big walls they have surrounding cities. If someone comes up to the wall and rams it once or twice, maybe a couple of the, the planks splinter and they give up and leave, what are you going to do with that wall? You're going to go down there and you're going to fix those little splinters and that's it. You haven't changed the structure of the wall. You just changed that little splinter there. But when the giant walked up and knocked the whole gate down, you take a look at it and say, that gate was not sufficient. You rebuild the gate in double. You extend how far it extends past the wall's perimeter. You extend the height and you extend the thickness because you were shown a clear weakness in the wall. 
It's not that, oh, there's a cosmetic issue we have to, ch- to clear up. It's we need a better wall. And that's the way our body works in very simplistic terms. If you don't challenge it too much, you don't improve upon it. You just regenerate it. You need to challenge the wall, splinter the wall, shatter the wall occasionally, and then you build bigger, stronger, thicker walls. Who knew a Game of Thrones analogy would would come in here? It's new levels, man, new levels. There's a significant uh, fantasy element to the endurance (laughs) training world, Kirk. (laughs) In this sort of whimsical 120% sense? Sure. Yeah, I I uh I like that analogy. That's a good one. I think you know, and we're not we're not promoting overtraining by any means. Mm-hmm. Heck, you're listening to a low mileage athlete. I'm the one telling you this. We're t- right, right? Like it's almost an oxymoron that me who ran 16 miles the week prior to a 17 mile race is telling you to swing the hammer hard. But if you go look the details in the fabric, right? The details are in the nuances in between. You see that the hammer's been swung hard, and so I just. <sighs> We're not telling you to overtrain and we're telling you the repercussion of these big hammer swings is on the opposite side is recovery. But I don't know how there's not truth to this. I do not know how we are not right. I don't know. I'm sure somebody could pick holes in this, but I'd like to see him try. Well, I'll pick the first major hole and it's not really a hole. It's just, it would be a misunderstanding. It would be if you did this for every quality day. If you took the 120% in terms of destruction on every quality day, but that's not what we're saying. We said very clearly, one of the days, your 120% means you're working 120% of race speed. It's not a massive three-hour workout. It's just 20% faster than the speed you'll need. Another day, you're doing 20% more vert than what you would need to survive the course. And then, like you said, once every three or four or six weeks, you do 120% of anything you could ever survive volume-wise in a race. But they're few and far between. It's not just that we go easy between each one and then do another monster workout. Kirk and I don't do monster workouts very often. We survive on big workouts. Mm -hmm. We do large dose workouts, but we only do crazy dose about once a month. Yep. You know... He, Dr. Clary outlined this well, and he said, you're only going to dead, I only deadlift heavy, what do you say, once every 14 days. Mm-hmm. And I was the deadlifting world champ at 19, and I was only deadlifting once every 14 days. And I, and I said in that interview, I was like, wait, so for clarity, like you, you're still deadlift, you're not just like deadlifting and then two weeks and no deadlifting and then deadlifting again. He's like, no, every 14 days is when I go for max effort. I'm going to the well. I'm using every fiber of my body to pull that freaking weight up. Mm-hmm. In between, I am deadlifting at sub-maximal efforts. So what we're talking about is, just to even clarify further, is let's say every three weeks you swing that hammer so hard. It's something you've never even fathomed doing before, right? Something so outlandishly hard or over-race specific. But in between, you're still you're still keeping the grease grooved, right? By still hitting Maybe some of those traditional workouts we're talking about, maybe going to hit your 400 repeats or your mile repeats, the traditional stuff is still going to be in there. But then every third week, you know, it's coming and that date is circled on your calendar. And it's like, today's the day I changed myself. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking necessarily about every single time you hit a quality workout doing that, but we're talking about getting it in the rotation. That's what we're talking about. I'm really glad you brought that up because we did get questions about that. He really only have to deadlift twice per month. Well, what he said is you could get away with deadlifting twice per month as an endurance athlete if you have a base of strength in the weight room. 
But if you're trying to be better at deadlift, you only change your life deadlift once to twice a month. The rest, you're hitting your human workouts 120% on sets, but you're not going 120% with all the way into the well. There is nothing left more than once, sometimes twice a month. I didn't want to mislead by thinking that, okay, well, every Tuesday and Saturday now I got to go run 30 miles on Saturday because the race is 20. And then I got to go do 20 by a mile on Tuesday because I'm running half marathon. Like that's not what we're talking about, but getting it in the rotation. I would say even every two weeks, probably every two weeks about swinging the hammer, like we're talking about, like inside out something uh, beyond what you've ever done before and can conceive doing every two weeks at the most often. Yes. But you could extend that out further, but that's just what we're outlining. I want to talk about what I was doing in Colorado because that was at the ultimate peak of my fitness in my life to date. So I had a nine day schedule I was keeping and I had three workouts I would hit. I would hit hill speed work in between 5k and threshold. I would hit a true interval workout and I would hit a long mountain day. Every nine days, those were the three I was hitting. Now, the hill work, I was doing a shoots and ladders progression where I was adding rounds every nine days. I'd try to add one more round to it. And when I first started, it was a seven mile workout. And by the end, it was an 11 and a half mile hill workout. Wow. Now, it was faster than the hills I was going to need, but it wasn't a 13 mile workout. 11 and a half miles is a long workout, but it's not a long run. So the speed was over speed, especially downhill but I was taking long rest between reps and it was still an 11 and a half mile day. That's a, I was hitting 70 mile weeks. That's not an excessively long day, but the impact of the hills was 20% harder than any race I was going to have to do. Then I went and did my actual speed day. I'd run anything from 800s to miles in this, um, this dog park that we had, Bear Creek Dog Park. And I'd get done with that. I'd come home, I'd grab like either either Gatorade, because we didn't have a uh, sustainable back then. I grabbed mm-hmm. Gatorade or some sort of tailwind or half of a smoothie. And I'd drive right over to the incline and I'd hit the incline at tempo pace to the top. Right after. Right after, but it probably was a 20 minute turnaround in there. But so I'd finish speed workout and then I'd do a 20 to 25 minute sustained threshold work. So that's a big workout, but it was probably a seven mile day, seven and a half mile day, maybe eight, oh, I guess eight, eight if I was running um, the bar trail back down, because that's three miles almost down, but coming down was pure recovery. And then I'd hit my long mountain day. And most times that was a 90 minute run. But every three to six weeks, I'd run Pikes Peak, mm. which is more like two and a half, three hours to the top. You were hitting Pikes Peak on a regular basis? Semi-regular. Once a month, I'd hit Pikes Peak. Isn't that like 13, 14 on top? Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a 14er up on top. 14er? Starts wow. at seven, goes up to 14. But so so, but I couldn't do that more than once a month because it was destructive. Or I'd do a big workout where I'd run up to bar camp, which is six, six and a half miles. I'd tempo up and then just empty the tank coming down. And it'd be a two-hour workout. It'd take an hour 20 to get up and you get down in 40 minutes and just my at the bottom, I'd be like jelly legged going down the final steps at the bottom. And I wouldn't want to do anything with my life for two or three days afterwards, but that was one time a month. So it showed that I was over swinging on every day, but with different purposes, they weren't all monster workouts. Some were just faster, some were longer, but only once a month. And the rest were just exceeding what I would need to do to survive a race. 
and think about that. And then you go back and watch Spartan Rewinds and you see what did you do in Montana? What did you do in Washougal or wherever it was? What did you do in, in a race that was four or five miles and listen to, listening to your training, what you were doing in preparation, of course you were ready to race well because that race didn't accumulate nearly as much vert as nearly as much time under intensity. And you went in your body, you were in control of your effort for the whole duration of the race instead of hanging on by the time you were halfway through because you only trained to the race's demands. And what was my placement at the halfway point and at the finish line of both of those races? They were not the same. It was for the first time in my life, I was attacking the second half instead of holding on. Hmm. In Washougal, I was fighting for fourth and fifth for the first two miles, just redlined and hating life. And at the end, I ran down Cody, which he beat me, but you don't, I don't run Cody down. You were closing. And then in Montana, I was in fifth place at the log carry halfway through the race. And I took second and I closed on Ryan. Again, I don't do that normally. And I haven't done that since, but it was because of the 120% workouts I was doing, I was able to sustain through the bad parts and then realize that really might've been 85 or 90%. Now I'm going to empty the bucket this last half of the race. And I was able to make moves rather than hold on. Do you want to know what's interesting about that? So I went and creeped everybody's Strava data from the race this weekend and I won by almost nine minutes, right? Mm -hmm. My last four miles were 535. 610, 610, 6 flat, 6 something at the end where we start to flatten out, right? After all of that vert. And then I went back and I creeped the people I beat. And I wanted to know what they did because I knew how that last bit felt and it was horrendous. But I could sustain, I could choose to sit in it. And yes, I won by nine minutes, but I put four or five of those minutes on in four or five of those last miles. Because when I swing, I swing. And I do believe I do that still in training. I think I can do it better and I'm going to. Mm -hmm. But that is how it literally made or broke that race wide open. It was in the end, just like you talk about, where I could still choose to push where other people are just hanging on because they train to races demands. I mean, I put on half the amount I won by in a quarter of the race. And that's because of exactly what we're talking about. So it was just cool to see that on paper where I was like, aha, I really, most of the percentage of the gap came in the last four or five miles in my race. And it was because at least my quality, I bet you my quality days are bigger than any of those guys' quality days. And that's what I think played out more than yeah. anything. So it's just, it's just to reiterate your point. And, and I'm going to finish up with uh, Eliud Kipchoge again. Okay. Come back to him a lot. But this is a guy who ran 436 or something like that, 434 for 26 miles to, set, to break two hours in the marathon. How do you say that without just feeling like shit about yourself? Every time I do. But oh. his training, he throughout his marathon career hits thousands on the track in sub three minute pace, way sub, which obviously you have to do because three minute thousands isn't even race pace for him. But he's running 10 ish by thousand on the track in all of his training blocks. And he's running it at more like 10K pace or slightly under, or he's running fast spiked up sometimes or in flats running hard on the track. And that's something that not a lot of marathoners do, but it's the reason that in any sort of marathon, especially moderately paced, he can make massive moves from 30 K on where most people hit the wall. It's because he's literally running at 80% through 30 K and then he's hammering home because he has true speed. He has 120% speed to back up his crazy threshold work in his long runs. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good way to kind of describe the overspeed training. I would say, I, I don't, I don't like that guy. <laughs> I don't like that guy at all. You want to feel like a mortal? Just go look at how fast that guy runs. If you added thirty seconds per mile to his marathon time, I would have pulled away in the last mile to beat him during my five k PR. <laughs> so dumb because i ran 502 for my 5k pr and he ran 434 436 like i would have been closing on him in the last thousand and i would have outkicked him the last 200 and he would have continued on for 23.2 or 0.1 more miles see that that's why i don't like that guy every time you do something fast you turn around and you realize i'm i'm a toddler compared to someone else there's levels to everything, yeah. right? There's levels to everything. I don't have, I don't know if I have anything real specific left to add. Do you? No. Other than Kirk, uh, I sent you a screenshot of a hotel I booked for for Minneapolis in May. And this is Woo! going to be our, our, our big weekend. We're going to do back-to-back big workouts and we're going to change our fitness. Yes, we are. What's the date on that? Can you refresh me? May 7th through 9th, I believe. May 7th through the 9th. Well, I, uh, I'll block that off in my calendar. We're going to pound. We're going to go out to Afton Alps for once. We're going to take you to Afton and we're going to go get it. Yeah. And then we'll probably have to have some, uh, some Highland ski hill as well. Yeah. I got, we got better training grounds that I found since you've been last though. So you'll have to see Afton. I think that excites me. Yeah. Um, folks, you won. go buy the t-shirts because <laughs> they're taking up my whole damn spare bedroom right now. And they're soft and they're amazing. And the Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday pen shirts are real. And also, our running public training plan is $19.99 a month. If you're sitting there thinking about it or wondering, like, hey, I don't know, it's $20. Don't eat out one time this week and it'll pay for it. Go try it. I'm telling you, it's good training. And it's almost, it's too cheap to even be believable. So get on that. I challenge someone to find a plan with better bang for the buck than $19 a month for full service OCR and $5 a month for good sequential strength training. I mean, yes, it's pretty pretty much a charity service at this point, folks. <laughs> Just a charity service. It keeps the it's enough to keep the lights on on the podcast, our web hosting fees. Yeah, we do have a lot of fees adding up, don't we? Listen, I'm like three grand in the hole on this t-shirt order. So <laughs> I'm eating ramen until you guys buy some. So that's where I'm at. You know, I ate ramen this week. I haven't eaten it for a long time. We made brats and I I, I had some ramen and beans on the side. Was it good? Delicious. Mm. It wasn't the full meal. It was a side dish. Well. But I went years of that was the full meal, Kirk. Yeah. Well, that's where I'm at until more of these t-shirts go bragging. All right. Without any thinking, best ramen flavor. Go. Well, probably just like the chicken or whatever it is. Yeah, can't go wrong with that. But I'm partial to creamy chicken. Harder to find. I didn't know. I didn't know that was an option. So when I go to my local Aldi, I'll look for it. Maybe it's just old. <laughs> it could be just old. <laughs> All right, now we're rambling, folks. All right, get out there, swing that hammer. Mm-hmm.